standing for the reading of scripture this morning, which is a, a good tradition that we have here, a custom or tradition, because we want to show the honor that we believe that this is God's word and not the word of men, and so it's a sign of respect, but it is not a means to holiness, and there are occasionally those who are unable to stand because of the infirmity of their body or uh, momentary weakness and difficulties, and so we recognize that. And the reason I'm saying this, you'll understand later on this morning, why there can be a good tradition, but it's just that, and we want to keep it as that, just a a tradition, not something that we we misapply. So our morning scripture reading is from the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, uh, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and Many other such things you do. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Remember in the previous chapter, chapter 6, how Jesus had compassion on the multitude of 5,000 men plus the women and the children that were there. So we said there could be uh, certainly 10, 15,000 or more people Uh, who were gathered there when Jesus fed them. They were out in the countryside. They had been with him all day. They didn't have anywhere to eat. It was late in the afternoon. And Jesus did the miracle feeding of taking the fish and the bread and dividing it and feeding the great multitude. But do you remember what Jesus did before uh, he um, fed the multitude, before he gave the broken bread and fish to the apostles to then pass out and hand out to the people that were gathered there. Do you remember what Jesus did? Jesus prayed and asked God's blessing upon the food. But also, did you notice what Jesus and his apostles did not do? Neither Jesus nor his apostles practiced ritual hand washing following man-made religious traditions. Now, this lesson and and what's going on and what we're going to learn more about here in chapter 7 about the ritual of hand washings is not about hygiene. It's not about being clean and washing your hands before you eat a meal because you've been out petting the dog or you've been out planting flowers or whatever you may have done. You know, Uh, That's not what this is about. It's about something far more serious. And so here we're not dealing and saying, oh, was Jesus not clean about how to wash your hands or take a bath or No, that's not what this is about. This is about man-made traditions of rituals and rules that say you can be holier by your own works. I've had the experience, maybe you have as well, getting the call. Daddy, 
brother had his eyes open during prayer. Oh, how did you know? Or we would be at a meal somewhere, maybe out at a restaurant, and all of a sudden, after the meal had begun, oh no, we didn't pray out loud. And my response would be, well, be thankful in your heart. Oh, yes, we regularly pray out loud. Even in public, we'll bow our heads and pray out loud. Uh, sometimes we may be distracted or maybe we're in a hurry or whatever. But you can be thankful in your hearts always and sanctify that which you receive unto the Lord. And even if we do pray out loud, where should it start? By being thankful in your heart. So can you think maybe of some other egregious religious rituals or man-made rules that often people fall into? What about the water of baptism? The water of baptism is common water. It's not water that's kept in a special vessel. It's not water that comes from a special spring or some source that makes it holy. The water of baptism is common water. What sets it apart and what makes baptism special is the teaching of Scripture and the words of institution that tell us it's a symbol of a greater reality, the power of the Holy Spirit to wash our soul, the power of the Holy Spirit to be poured into us by the the supernatural work and act of God. The water is just a symbol, and the water is not to be venerated, worshipped, or made special. The same thing is true of the juice or the wine and the bread and the Lord's Supper. We completely reject any idea of superstition that that bread or that that juice or wine changes into anything other than juice, wine, or bread. What sets it apart are the words of institution that tell us symbolically it represents something far greater and powerful. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who was once offered for our sins. He is not being sacrificed again. It is a remembrance of what he once and for all did and calling to remembrance what God promised because of his acceptable sacrifice. And can't we be thankful? And can't we look forward to that as a pledge of the end of all bloodshed and of all violence that will come through the peace, the Prince of Peace, even the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we take that Lord's Supper, we don't lift the elements up and say worship them. After the Lord's Supper is over, we don't do something special with the leftover wine or the leftover bread and say, oh, now... It's something that that can't be touched or it has to be dealt with in a special way. I've been in churches before and maybe here in the past as well that often on communion Sundays when the ladies would take the uh, elements back after the Lord's Supper and after service, sometimes the children would rush in and want to have the leftovers. You know what I say? Let them have the leftovers. It's just juice and wine. Let them have the wine and we can take a nap. (laughs) It's just bread. And we have to be careful that we don't run the risk of idolatry about these things. Do you think there's something special if you make the sign of the cross with your hand? And that that makes you holier than others? I already mentioned this morning the fact that we stand for the reading of God's word. That doesn't make us holier. There are some among us... And in compassion, we realize that they're infirmed or weak or they've had surgery or there may be some reason why they can't stand. But that's just a a tradition that shows respect. It's not something that makes anybody more holy. And so I hope you get where we're going with this. Did you make the connection with the opening of Mark chapter 7 about 
those coming down from Jerusalem and the Pharisees are maybe already being there and some of the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, that there was this dispute over the ritual of hand washings and of different kinds of washings. So Jesus is once again accosted by the Jewish religious establishment in Jerusalem over his rejection of man-made religious traditions that violate the revealed word of God. I suspect that there were Jewish spies from Jerusalem that were hounding and following around and skulking wherever Jesus went. In that multitude of 5,000 plus, there were probably some spies. There were Pharisees who were gathered there. Many of them maybe out of some genuine interest. Other who were tattletales back to Jerusalem. And whenever Jesus did something that was out of tradition or whenever Jesus uh, spoke in rebuke, of the self-righteousness of man-made rituals and religion, they would report back to Jerusalem. Oh, he said this. The tattletale line is burning up to tell and to report on Jesus. I know this to be true because back in chapter 2, what happened? Jesus confronted them over their issue of religious fasting. And he talked to them about why their uh, activity of fasting, the way they did it and what they expected of it, was not godly. It's not about fasting. It's about their false ritual of fasting, that it could make them more pure or more holy from their human works. And then there was also in that same chapter the dispute over the Sabbath keeping. All the man-made regulations that made the Sabbath a burden rather than a delight. Jesus confronted them about their false teachings regarding the Sabbath and their attempt to keep a checklist of rules that would make them more holy than others and fill them with self-righteousness. And you know what they wanted to do when Jesus confronted them about that? They sucked off and they planned how they could murder him. So yeah, they had spies following Jesus, reporting back an intent on how they might have occasion to where they could kill The Lord Jesus. The scriptures tell us that very plainly. Well, we come to chapter 7 now in our continuing exposition of the Gospel of Mark, straight talk about Jesus Christ. And here in the Gospel, uh, here in uh, chapter 7, we see that the Gospel purifies from the corruption of external man made religious traditions of self righteous rules and rituals. And the gospel purifies by clarifying the internal transformation of the soul by saving faith. This is a rich and beautiful chapter uh, as we go on through the exposition of Mark. And here we find this gospel confronting self-righteousness by law works versus God's righteousness by grace faith. And I want to point out to you again, this morning I'm going to give you an overview of chapter 7. That's been our practice, coming to each chapter to give you the overview, then come back and give a fuller exposition. But I want you to also recognize that chapter 7 is another good example of where the added chapter and verse divisions are well grouped. And I hope that you'll recognize that as as we give you the overview this morning. So in verses 1 through 16... Jesus preached the law word of God. As a matter of fact, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah chapter 29. And Jesus applied the new covenant gospel by first clarifying that sin is sourced in the human heart. And we'll come next week we'll come back and we'll give a fuller exposition of verses 1 through 16. But this, these man-made rules and rituals of outward washings cannot purify the corruption 
of the sin-hardened heart shown in all manner of self-righteousness disguised as religious piety. That's what Jesus is dealing with here. Those who think they're so pious religiously, they think they're holier, and they're about setting up uh, this demonstration that they, in their pride, their spiritual pride, are better than others. And their outward acts can make them more holy in this self-righteousness. As a matter of fact, Jesus goes to the law of God in the fifth commandment as an example of where they have been so fastidious about washing their hands and washing their cups and washing their uh, clothes and their vessels and even their furniture. But he says, you can't make your heart clean by this stuff. And so when I said, this isn't about some common hygiene you know, yes, we've learned the value of washing our hands. Uh, back when I was younger and did a lot of uh, uh, camping and hunting out in, in the woods and stuff, you, you may be surprised at this, but sometimes if I didn't have uh, a lot of water readily available, maybe I just had the water I'd packed in to drink, I would take sand or uh, some different uh, shrubs or uh, vegetation, and I would clean my hands with them and then pour a few drops of water to wash it off. Do you ever think you could clean your hands with dirt or with sand or with leaves? But you can. And so sometimes we get hung up on things like that. I'm not saying we get as hung up as the Pharisees on ritualistic washings. We need to understand what's going on here. Jesus is addressing the heart. And he's saying, here you're so fastidious about all these little details and about how you wash your hands and everything that you wash. But you've neglected the greater commandments of God, and he cites the fifth commandment in respect and care for parents. So that's a a powerful conviction that Jesus brings in his confrontation with uh, the scribes, Pharisees, the traditions of man-made rituals and rules that think that they can become more religiously pious and holy because of these things. And then the second part of this chapter in verses 17 through 23 is also very instructional to us because Jesus protests against his disciples' confusion over the basics of the new covenant gospel, clarifying the need for heart purification affecting the supernatural essence of the soul. Here Jesus says, what? You still don't get it? And he does. He expresses... uh, frustration with his uh, disciples. And he protests that they should know better by now. They should be connecting the dots that we talked about. And we'll revisit that even in the, in the language that Jesus uses. But Jesus is hammering for them to understand the need for heart purification. And it's that need for heart purification that affects then the supernatural essence of the soul and does manifest itself outwardly. But not in self-righteousness and not in ritualistic attempts to be holier than others. Sin's corruption is not in outward things, food or drink or personal or household items or clothing or furniture. That's still a very current idea among those who who are influenced by the whole idea of works righteousness and that you can uh, save yourself or even if you are saved by grace that you continue by work somehow, that you can be holier and you can gain to yourself some status of holiness and it's all externalized. And it becomes a matter of restriction against, oh, I don't eat that kind of food, I don't drink that kind of drink, oh, I don't wear that kind of 
uh, clothing or I don't groom myself that way, it all becomes external, even to the extent of what kind of car you drive or, or what kind of house you live in. Some who will say, you need to have the plainest car that shows that you are humble. Others would say, you should have the most expensive car that shows that you're God's favorite. All this externalism that Jesus condemns. We need to listen carefully to what he has to say. Because sin is sourced in the human heart. It's caused by original and actual sins. It's revealed by the law of God. This is not a secret. This is why Jesus is so discouraged with his disciples. Have you never read Jeremiah the prophet? Have you never read Ezekiel the prophet? Have you never heard that there must be a heart change from within? Your dead heart needs to be made alive. Your stone heart needs to be made a heart of flesh. This was well known. This was well preached by the faithful ministers and prophets of the word of God. There was the application, the universal application of the moral law of God. Never did any of the prophets teach that you could save yourself. The Pharisees are the examples of this self-righteousness. In our day, there are those who are disputing and saying, oh, there was not really a a, a teaching of of self-righteousness or of, of law works for salvation. That wasn't really what they taught. Yes, it was. Jesus tells us that's what they taught and believed. Paul tells us that's what they taught and believed. And beloved, it's still with us today. It's still taught and believed today. But it is against the clear word of God. You cannot save yourself. You cannot be good enough to be accepted by God. Understand this equation. If you would be good enough to be accepted by God, you must also be equal to God. There was only one person that was good enough in human flesh to be equal and to satisfy God. And that was the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so for salvation to be meaningful from what the gospel, the good news tells us, it's about what we can't do for ourselves. We cannot save ourselves by good works. No matter how fastidious, no matter how careful, no matter how we may multiply them and try to make them more doable. You see, that's what happened with the scribes and the Pharisees. From the traditions of the elders, even though those were uh, written down later after Jesus, they were current in oral tradition at the time of Jesus from the different schools of the Pharisees, and they would multiply these attempts to say, uh, well, you have to wash, and I have to wash it in a certain way, in a certain uh, manner, and with a certain amount of water, etc. You have to wash either to your wrist or either up to your elbows, or one would have this view, another would have that view, and then, of course, they would have these caveats. Of course, that's unless you're out in the desert... Hmm, what are we going to do about that? And so there was all this cavil and double talk that was going on from the schools of the Pharisees and the traditions that had been uh, multiplied and added as burdens. And it actually had become like some kind of massive regulation system that was self-contradictory. But it was glaringly contradictory to the Word of God. So you're worried about how many grams of dirt might be under your fingernail, but your aged mom and dad are languishing in in neglect. That's what Jesus is getting at. Dirt under your fingernails, but you won't even provide a meal for your aged mother and father. That's how serious Jesus is saying this stuff is. 
This isn't some kind of academic debate. This isn't some kind of, uh, well, we're for this team and they're for that team. This is not a rivalry between mascots or sports teams. This is about people in their self-righteousness living in such um, pride that they show contempt and neglect for the closest of relationships that God has designed on earth. So yeah, Jesus is angry with holy anger about this. And he's upset because his disciples aren't connecting the dots. What, you still don't understand this? So we come to the next section, the third section of this chapter, verses 17 through 23. Um, I'm sorry, I I think I just mentioned that one. That's Jesus protesting against his disciples' confusion. Uh, The next section, verses 24 through 30, and we find this story that may seem arbitrary. Jesus leaves that region. He goes to, uh, to Tyre and Sidon, the region there. It's outside of, of uh, the region of, uh, um, of uh, Judea. And he goes into a Gentile region. And he encounters a woman, a Syrophoenician woman, a woman who is a Greek. And he commends the faith of this woman who is a Gentile outside of Old Covenant Judaism. And you need to understand this story is strategically put here by the Holy Spirit through the writing of Mark as an outward demonstration of her inward grace faith in contrast to the self-righteousness and law works mentality of the scribes and Pharisees and their influence on the people. You see, this Greek Syrophoenician woman, this Gentile, to the Jewish elite, is the pagan antithesis to their self-righteousness. I don't want you to lose that. That this story is most valuable here. And it teaches us a lesson. This episode of Jesus giving the new covenant blessing of salvation to a Gentile woman represents the heart of the gospel. And we have a a sanctified and inspired commentary on this, the exposition that the Apostle Paul gives us in chapters 1 through 3 of Romans. I would encourage you to read that. Read this story of the Syrophoenician woman and her faith, and then go read Romans 1 through 3. And I'll tell you who is an authority on this. There is one Apostle Paul who is an authority on this because he used to be of the Jewish elite himself as Saul the Pharisee. You think he doesn't know what he's talking about? He had the inside track. He was one of the spies. I'm not saying he was one of the spies that condemned Jesus, but he spied on the Christians. We have his own testimony to that. And so this previously elite Pharisee, by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, was transformed from within in his own heart seeing the error of this law, works, self-righteousness, and the hardening, deadening effect that it brings. And there's a reason to get exercised and upset about this kind of thing. We should still be exercised and upset about it today because people are going about thinking they can save themselves. They're building up their own false uh, piety, 
They're making their own religious traditions. And by it, they are scorning and condemning and binding the conscience of others. That brings us then to the final part of chapter 4. And this is Jesus healing a deaf man with a malaffected speech. This is really significant. We might just read over this as, oh, Jesus healed another poor person who, who, who needed help. But no, you need to see again, it's strategically located in this chapter. It gives us an object lesson to clarify the necessity of the new covenant gospel. To hear and to speak clearly God's way of saving faith. I want you to see that as we come to the conclusion of this chapter 7. That Mark has repeatedly documented Jesus' vast and varied healing of all kinds of people in different places. Do you remember that? Can you just think back through the the chapters that we've covered so far? Jesus is here. Jesus is there. Jesus is in the house. Jesus is on the sea. Jesus is out uh, in the countryside. Jesus is walking by the seashore over and over again. And the people are about him flocking him everywhere. Everywhere he goes on this side of the Sea of Galilee, on that side of the Sea of Galilee, coming out of the tombs, uh, tracking him down in the crowd. And what do we find happening over and over All kinds of people in all various places are healed by Jesus. As a matter of fact, we're told there were more and more and more that we can't even tell you all of them. There were so many. Sometimes they just flock to him in the marketplace just to reach out and touch him or or just to see him pass by, having faith that they would be healed. So why are these particular stories told to us? They have a purpose and an intent of revealing to us who Jesus is and what the gospel is. And so specific details are given of some healing or some work and and power of Jesus to reveal the greater truth about Jesus as Messiah, the anointed Savior. He can save your soul because He stops the storm. Stopping the storm is easy. He can save your soul because He can raise up the lame. That's easy. He can help you and provide for you and promise you that He will never leave you or forsake you in this walk of life. That's easy. But you know what Jesus does that's greater than all of those things? He forgives your sin. That's hard. Because sin is hard. Because sin is death. Because sin required the death of Jesus on the cross. The innocent, the pure, the sinless for the guilty and the sinful. And if you haven't come to acknowledge that you are guilty and sinful and that you need Jesus to save you, not just to give you a better life, but to forgive your sins, then you don't know what the gospel is. You can't save yourself. And so this particular story of Jesus healing a man who was mute and had a a, a malaffected speech is very important. And again, we'll give more details and talk about the significance of that as we come to the conclusion of chapter 7 in the exposition. But when we come to the conclusion of chapter 7, you know what we should do? We should celebrate by a new covenant gospel party. That's really... As I've been, I know, preaching pretty directly and strongly and and calling this out, this matter of sin, because Jesus does here, we shouldn't lose the greater joy. And the greater joy is that when we come to the conclusion of chapter 7, we should have a gospel party. 
A new covenant gospel party. Now, I know sometimes the word party has been trivialized. You know, in the Old Testament, God had designated feasts or festivals. Why do we think that he would be stingy and restrict us from something far greater? He tells us the new covenant is greater and better with better promises, with a full understanding, with a a more delighted, full consciousness of expectation. What do you think a new covenant gospel party would look like? Well, I'm going to give you a hint. Chapter 8 and chapter 9 are coming. And so I hope that you will be reading chapter 7 of the Gospel of Mark. I hope that you will read along with Romans chapters 1 through 3 that I told you about in connection with this Syrophoenician woman and and the gospel of grace by uh, faith. Hearing it from one who was on the inside and attest to us of the great liberality that comes from a soul set free from the guilt of sin and to know God's love and God's forgiveness. And I hope in doing that, you too want to have a new covenant gospel party. Let me give you another suggestion about this idea of a new covenant gospel party and the celebration of the good news of salvation by grace through faith. It's not about getting worldly stuff. So do we celebrate the gospel? This scripture really brings that home to our hearts and minds. Our concluding hymn this evening, our our morning, this hymn uh, of... uh,